Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Dear ones, thank you for joining us today on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. I'm John Russin. I serve as a host, and I'm here with my uh, uh, partner in crime, partner in arms, however you want to describe it, Pastor Frank Friedman. Uh, it's been a great day uh, here in Houston. How are things in Baton Rouge, my friend? Well, John, we have an unseasonably low humidity, so it's almost California weather out there in South Louisiana. It's a beautiful day. Well, if there's some part of California you'd like to have in Louisiana, I think the weather would kind of be about it, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> All right, friends, if you've joined us for the first time, Frank and I are in the middle of our current series. We're discussing our way through the epistle to the Colossians. And as we've seen in the past couple of episodes, it is truly, in our opinion, one of the very best for highlighting the sufficiency and the preeminence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we've talked to the first few episodes, we spent the last time focusing on the beginning of Paul's prayer for those believers. We talked about his heart of compassion, and we spent a lot of time discussing just exactly what our Father has done for us, didn't we, Frank? Qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints, delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, transplanted us in the kingdom of his Son, gave us redemption, and gave us forgiveness for every single sin, past, present, and future. So my goodness, what an incredible testimony. If that's all Father does for us, that's outstanding. But it's not, is it, Frank? We're going to see more today, won't we? Oh, he is the God of much more. He, he actually uses that <laughs> word in the book of Romans, much more. We have a much more God. Yes, we certainly have. And so today, Frank, we're going to change gears a little bit. Last episode, we were talking about what Father has done for us. And we're going to focus now, beginning in verse 15, on a different section of this first chapter of Colossians. And we're going to talk about, at least begin to talk about, I'm not sure how we can ever exhaust it, the preeminence of Christ. And I've sort of broken this up into a few sections, and I want to begin by talking about verses 15 to 17. And it's a section that I call the preeminence of Christ in creation. And I want to read these verses again from my currently favorite version, the English Standard. He is the image of the invisible God. He, of course, is Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, 
and in him all things consist. Frank, I didn't count how many times the word all <laughs> or the word <laughs> him or he is in there, but there's a bunch, isn't there? He's certainly trying to get something across, isn't he? <laughs> he certainly is. Okay, my friend, I don't speak Greek, so I'm going to ask you to put on your Greek hat and let's talk about this first word. He is the image of the invisible God. That's the word icon. So basically, mm -hmm. talk to us about image. What exactly does Paul mean? Is he just a picture, a reflection in a mirror, or, or what is an image? In its most basic essence, it's the idea of likeness. So when we do look in a mirror, we see the likeness of who we are. And so in essence, Jesus is the image, the likeness of God. And John, I think what we need to do for our listeners is go to what I call the great trilogy of John chapter one. John wrote this incredible gospel, which is very unique. One of these days, we'll have to maybe take a journey through that that will last us a couple of years. It's the, probably the, one of the most amazing books in the Bible because it's the gospel written to the believer. And I, I don't want to get into that too much, but it's the, again, that idea of what we saw last week where this epistle, Paul's prayer is, let me show you what you really have. I think the gospel of John is, let me show you what you really have. So there's three key verses in the first 18 verses. One is verse 18, where it says, no man has seen God at any time, but the son has revealed him, unveiled him, manifested him. Well, how can the son do that? Well, that's John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And I love the idea that Jesus is spoken of as the word. He's the one we can see, read about, and see God. Well, how did he do that? And here's the key, John 1, 14. He became flesh. He, Philippians 2, although existing in the form, nature of God, did not have to cling to his nature. He humbled himself, did not exercise his godness, but became flesh. So we got to John 1.14, finally see the glory of God. And here's what I want to stress to our listeners, John. Anytime God revealed himself in the Old Testament economy, men and women were on their nose, afraid that they were in the presence of God thinking they were going to die because they were in the overwhelming presence of God. But by becoming flesh for the first time since the fall, man could look at God veiled in flesh in a safe way and see the glory of God without it destroying him. Jesus, it says in Hebrews, was the exact expression of who God is. And I love what John 1.14 goes on to say, John. The first thing that comes out of man finally being able to see the glory of God is that God was full of grace. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, full of grace. When I think of this, Frank, we've talked about this before, that Jesus made God safe. Yes, but but even 
even though he walked with his disciples for three and a half years, even though we walk with him for much of our lives, we still miss the fact that he is fully representing and expressing the perfectly visible, concrete, touchable representation of the father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. When they ask him, hey, show us the father. Man, I've been with you all this time. You know, I'm God. Uh, This is what Mm. God is really like. God's personality, (laughs) what he likes, what he Mm. laughs at, what he grieves, what he smiles at, what he enjoys. It was all wrapped up in Jesus. They got to see God as a person. Mm. What an incredible picture. And they missed it. And Frank, we miss it a lot too, don't we? This is one of the things I think we need to point out. You know, the old adage, familiarity breeds contempt. Oh, yeah. It's almost like we become so comfortable that we lose the sense of awe and wonder of what's happened. We know that Jesus is our brother from the book of Hebrews. We know that he is our savior, Lord, uh, life. But we start to use the name so frequently that we fail to realize that that's the name above every name. It's the name where every knee is going to bow. I find it fascinating, John, that after the resurrection, there is not one reference to Jesus being just Jesus. Yes. Except maybe in a narrative. Mm -hmm. He is always called the Lord Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the Holy Spirit did that to us to remind us of the supremacy of who he really is and never ever get over the glory that who he is the living god has chosen to befriend us to love us to enter into relationship with us and how do we even say this without being stunned to actually make his address you and me he's gonna live inside of us yeah he wants to hang with us and just experience everything we experience. Wow. All right, Frank, that was a good answer. So I'm going to ask you another question. Okay, we've talked about that he is the image of God. Paul writes here also that he is the firstborn of Mm -hmm. all creation. Now, I'm going to ask you to comment on that. But I want to begin first by saying that, boy, there are lots of cults out there and fringe Christian groups that peel off with regard to what this really means. So tell us, what does Paul mean when he writes about the firstborn of all creation? Well, I don't know that that is the best translation. And I think that's what causes some of the problem. It's prototokos. And the word John literally means uh, unique. I would probably put the main meaning of the word as premier, the top, the supreme. And it's interesting, our English translations say of all creation. The word of is not in the Greek text. It's implied, but it's not there. So if we were going to actually take a Greek text and literally word for word translate it, it would be premier 
all creation. And, and that kind of says it a little better. <laughs> He's the head over everything. Um, yeah. The supreme one, the one without which nothing else really exists. In fact, yeah. Paul's going to go on to kind of uh, elaborate on that for us and define in context what he means by firstborn or premier. Yeah. My mind runs to uh, Psalm 89, and I went back to read this to confirm it. This is what Father God says. I will make him, Jesus, my firstborn. And this is where that phrase you mentioned really kicks in, Frank, the highest of the kings of the earth, the premier, mm. the first, the one that has all the rights and privileges and, and dignities associated with it. My mercy, I will keep him forever, and my covenant shall stand forever with him. So he certainly is premier above all. Uh, he is not a created being by any stretch of the imagination, but he is preeminent and premier over everything. John, some of those cults take that term firstborn and say that God created the son. Yes. Well, you can't do that because John 1.1 through 1.3 says the word Jesus created all things. So he, Jesus, cannot have created all things if he himself was created. That's right. That would be a lie. And then you go to Isaiah 45, and this makes it really clear. I am the Lord. There is none besides me, and I have created all things. So therefore, Jesus must be God. Yeah. God, the second person. That makes him then not the firstborn or the first one created, but the premier one or source or cause of all creation. It's, it's pretty clear when you go to other scriptures what is being said there by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. Indeed it is. And uh, that thought is expanded on as Paul continues here. And he says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So I want to take a pause here and give you a warning, Frank, and I'll give my listeners a warning. This is a science geek warning right here. <laughs> okay, so ready? I did some checking because this is the way my brain works. When he says that by him all things, Jesus created all things in the heavens. Okay. I started wondering, well, what on earth is up there in the heavens? And this is what I found. Astrophysicists say, I don't know how they know this, but they say pretty consistently that there are approximately 200 billion, that's a billion with a B, stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Man, that's a lot of stars. Hmm. And that there are at least 100 billion with the B galaxies in the universe. So I thought, huh, okay, 200 billion stars in the Milky Way. At least 100 billion other galaxies in addition to the Milky Way. That's a lot of stars. How many stars? Well, of course, being the science geek that I am, I did the math. And I came up with two times 10 to the 22nd. Well, nobody knows what that means. Mm -hmm. So I did this little 
exercise in my brain. <laughs> okay. I reduced our sun 865,000 miles across. I reduced it to the size of a grain of sand in my mind. And I asked this question, if each star were a grain of sand, how much sand would there be if we reduced all the stars to sand grains? Well, the math they came up with is nearly 300 billion cubic meters of sand. Now, what that means, Frank, is that if you took all the stars in the heavens and you put them in a pile, they'd make a cube of sand four and a half miles long, four and a half miles wide, and four and a half miles tall. And I read somewhere that there are more stars in the universe than there is sand in all the beaches of the world. And so when I see stuff like that, you want to talk about going wow and being stunned. I'm absolutely staggered because my big brother, Jesus, my savior, my Lord created all of that. What an incredible testimony of his power and majesty and ability to step into my puny little life and structure things so that all things work together for my good. So I, I apologize for my geek diversion <laughs> there, but uh, that just blew me away as to how incredibly immense our God's creation it actually is. And that's only the stuff that we know, man. That's not even the stuff we don't even know yet. Yeah. Wow. It's too big for me to wrap my brain around. Yeah. What it does for me, you know, I always want to take something like this that is so big, so grand, and try to bring it down to my feet and walk, is that, you know, John, when I look at this world uh, and how big it is, that's just our world, let alone the universe, I start to feel pretty small. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this is where Psalm 8 comes in. The psalmist has much the same thought. When I look at all of this, I begin to wonder, what is man that God would even take thought of it? And it's almost as if the Holy Spirit at that point in Psalm 8 says, stop it. Don't think like that. <laughs> because he goes on and says, no, 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 you don't get it. You were made for honor and dignity. You were made to rule and reign with God. And so what it does for me, John, when I look at how big this world is, when it tends to shrink me down and make me feel insignificant and small and puny and begin to wonder if I even matter, but I get to fix my eyes on this, over this vast universe is somebody who created that and who rules over it and invited me to rule over it with it. And that makes that great big vast universe begin to shrink down a little bit. Yeah, it and, truly uh, does. And, and it, it exalts me in a, in a way, you know? You know, it, it really does. It, it's humbling because this is what our Savior has done for us. When we were transplanted into his kingdom, guess what? <laughs> As his sons and daughters and heirs, 
we have his authority, his resources. Uh, I have no idea what eternity will be like, but I think it's going to be far more fascinating and enthralling and breathtaking and stunning. You choose the adjective uh, that mm. we can ever possibly imagine. All the while, while we're learning more about the majestic beauty and wonder of our father, which we can never exhaust. Wow. Mm. And so when I think of this stuff, Frank, okay, he created everything in the heavens and everything on the earth. You know, I don't know how many million species of living things there are on the earth. There's a bunch. He created them all. They're all different. They're all unique. That same power and ability and wisdom and knowledge dips down into the affairs of mankind and he creates a structure of authority. He says, hey, says not only everything in the heaven and earth, but every throne, every dominion, every ruler, every authority, both on the earth and the, this could be spiritual as well. Every one of these was created by him. And every one of these is under his control. And so it gives me a tremendous confidence that I don't have to worry about anything that might hit my life, because this is who's got my back. This guy who did all this, he's got my back. And I can just take a, I can take a breath. I can stand down and I can begin to trust him. Uh, I am tremendously encouraged personally by this, Frank, that uh, no matter what comes into my life, uh, who gets elected or what nightmare happens in the news, None of this happens without my father's knowing it and providing to minister his life in and through it. However, he manages to do that. Wow. Comfort, yeah, man. Comfort it, to it, me. It, it is because when you look at that verse 17, he is before, and that word is a powerful word before is it doesn't just mean appearing before it. The root of the word means in front of. And it's the idea of premier. Once again, it's almost like the Holy Spirit's being repetitious. Uh, he is before all things. He is the premier over all things, the source of all things. It's all about him. We don't have to worry about anything randomly coming into our lives if it's there he's on a throne he rules he reigns he uses all things I, there's this amazing verse john in psalm 119 verse 89 where the psalmist cries out and he says all things are your servants yeah uh, the world we live in is not a runaway freight train by any means he is working even if it's behind the scenes he is working and i love the way the rest of the verse says it uh, he holds everything together uh, if he doesn't hold it together it's gonna blow apart but yeah. he is holding it together you know we've talked about uh, warfare spiritual warfare a little bit and uh, we're not going to go into this to great detail but you quoted that verse from Psalm 119, all things are your servants. You know, that includes every created being, mm -hmm. both humans 
and non-humans, spiritual beings, angels, and everything else that we don't even know what's up there. He created them all, and he is Lord over even those who have chosen to disobey. Mm. And so no matter what they might throw at us, he is totally in control. As we've talked about many times in this podcast, referencing Job chapter 1, our father can choose to part the hedge if he wants to and give the enemy a couple more links of leash to get to us, but he never has full run. He's always controlled and it's always designed with God's perfect loving purpose in mind. Um, so again, I draw tremendous comfort from this passage. Yeah, we could go to some corollary passages, John, like Second Corinthians 12 where there was a messenger of Satan that came against Paul, but it says it was sent to him. Yeah. I, I think that's fascinating. Who was the sender? <laughs> uh, right. He couldn't send himself, so it had to be the hand of God. I think of Genesis with Joseph and, you know, where he says, you, my wicked brothers, you meant it for evil, but my God meant the same it for good. And so three times he tells them, you didn't send me to Egypt. Three times God sent me to Egypt. And, and that's the amazing thing, John. The things of this world, we don't want to live in an illusion or a fantasy. They do have power over us sometimes, but God is the ultimate power. They're not omnipotent. Those brothers did send him into Egypt. But the overwhelming truth was that God's omnipotent power overruled their evil plan because God wanted to use the same events, it's mind-boggling, the same events to bring about ultimate good. Yeah. It's amazing. Bring about the preservation of the nation. Mm. Wow. Through but, whom the promised seed would come. That's right. To build a place where he would send his son. He was under threat of death. Uh, he escaped back down to Egypt. And so for a long time, he's been cultivating this relationship, using the brother's decisions to turn on Joseph, using the circumstances in Joseph's life, all things to sort of build this, this tower, this magnificent testimony to his supernatural protection and provision all the way up through a resting place, a respite, a haven for the young Messiah while the king sought his life. Wow. Mm. Cool. Well, Frank, we're going to start to wrap up this section here on the preeminence of Christ in creation. And if you will please indulge me, and I'll ask this of our listeners too, there's one more science geek alert I have to give you. Okay. And it's based in this last phrase, in him all things, King James says, consist my version says, in, in him, all things hold together. And so I was watching this program not long ago, and it talks about gravity. Now, we know what gravity is. If you drop a pencil on the floor, it hits the floor, right? Because gravity. Bodies attract each other, and bigger bodies attract little bodies. And so the astrophysicists, this same group that we mentioned earlier, as they study stars in galaxies, they believe that it's gravity that holds all the stars in place, spinning around in those disks. Otherwise, they'd go flying through the universe on their own. But this is what I found out, Frank, that was fascinating. 
galaxies are so huge and the distance between the stars is so unimaginably great that even if you take the 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, there isn't enough gravity to keep the whole thing together. Hmm. So it's interesting. So they propose something called dark matter. This is where it gets crazy. And dark matter uh, is something they can't see, they can't measure, they can't detect in any way, but it has to be out there so that it adds its gravity to keep the universe together. Uh, instead of acknowledging Jesus Christ, that he holds it all together when the laws of physics says it shouldn't be, they have created something called dark matter to replace the power of the Lord Jesus Christ holding all things together. And so I watched this episode and I started yelling at the uh, television. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> Can't you see that this had got Philippians one written all over it? Then my mind went to Romans one professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. And I thought the information was fascinating, but I wept for the foolishness of the scientists my goodness so again please pardon my science geek diversion but i find this amazingly fascinating as well well you know john it's it's really interesting when you say that i just sit there pondering as i'm listening to you that is a faith venture what they're believing they can't prove it it's faith but yes. they would rather put faith in a something than faith in a someone. Because if they're going to put faith in a someone in God that has created, is holding things together, then that's one powerful being. And if that's one powerful being out there, then I have to be subservient to him. I have to recognize how great his power is. And, you know, Romans tells us that's the bottom line here. Man doesn't want God because then he's accountable to that God. So he has to cast God off so that he can continue to live as he wants to live, uh, to do what he wants to do to function as his own God. But it's, it's weird, John, how people look at science and go, wow, when it comes to the unknown, but we fail to reckon with the fact that that's a faith venture. And boy, I'd much rather put my faith in a someone who said, I love you so much that I'm gonna make you okay. I'm gonna come as one of you and deliver you and love you and give my life for you, it's much easier for me to put faith in a someone like that than oh. in something I, I can't understand. Oh, it certainly is. And as majestic as the universe and all creation happen to be, the finger work, the handiwork of God, scripture calls it. But when it came down to his work in Messiah, to redeem us. Isaiah talks about the bare arm of redemption. For as amazing as the universe is, it's nothing compared to what Father did by rolling up his sleeves and getting to work to secure 
our redemption and to make it possible for us to be transplanted into the kingdom of the one who snapped his fingers one day and made all this universe come into existence. Wow. Yeah. Well, my friend, we're getting close to the end of our time. What final words of wisdom might you share with us today? John, I think it would be a prayer. I think it was Peter that prayed this prayer in a moment of weakness. He said, Lord, I believe, but my unbelief. And, you know, when I look at the world around me, this week had a terrible shooting in Texas. And it's very easy for us to begin to doubt with the state of the world we live in. Um, and I think I would offer a prayer today. Lord, we, we believe but help our unbelief, um, help us understand in a world that looks out of control that you are still on the throne and working behind the scenes to bring about an ultimate end and an end that is ultimately good. Amen. Yes, sir. Please make it so. Well, friends, you've been listening to Frank and John on the Our Resolute Hope podcast. We are truly blessed that you've joined us today as we've been discussing our way through the epistle to the Colossians. Uh, please visit our website, OurResoluteHope.com. Check out the stuff you'll find there. You'll see a couple of books highlighted, uh, including our two newest books, uh, Finding God of the Grave, The Lonely Path of Pain, and our newest children's book, I Was Wrong, But God Made Me Right. Uh, sign up for our newsletters. We've got lots of free resources there for you, videos, eBooks, devotional thoughts, etc. all of which uh, we create with one goal in mind to lead you to the face of jesus christ your lord your savior and your very life send us an email if you can we'd love to hear from you and of course don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms you'll find us on facebook instagram uh, our own youtube channel and of course wherever you hear podcasts as always we close with this reminder from hebrews chapter 6 Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Peter calls it a living hope. In his first epistle, Frank and I call it a resolute hope. Our hope is Jesus. So today and always, choose that hope. Choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, he offers you himself, his own life. He wants to live his life with you, in you, and through you as you trust him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.